Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for July 2016. I am writer, hyphen, make podcasts great again, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Sophie Mayer, writer, hyphen, Holtz. And with us this month as our very special guest is... Rebecca Harkins-Cross, writer, hyphen, critic, hyphen, volcano survivor. (laughs) Hi, guys. Oh. Hi Beck, we're so happy to have you. And yeah, there was uh, there was an incident with a volcano last year. Uh, you were, there was. Um, you tempted to change your name to Joe. I don't get it. <laughs> as wow, in, as I in made versus a film the... joke that was too obscure for the podcast, as in uh, Joe versus the podcast. Um, there it is. Sorry, that one was straight over my head. I think it, that is the most notable volcano in cinematic history, though, isn't it? Well, it nearly okay. kills Tom Hanks, so. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, we're uh, we're very happy that uh, volcanoes couldn't keep you from us, and very excited to have you with us as we talk the films of July. We're going to begin with Steven Spielberg's adaptation of the opening chord progression of "Let It Be" by the Beatles, the BFG. <laughs> thank you, thank you. How but long it, have you been sitting on that one? Uh, there was a fair bit of googling when I should have been doing other things. Um, have you guys? Uh, did you guys get to this film? Um, I, I got there, I felt like my head was spinning around and dropping down a lift shaft, and then I left. I am not sure that Spielberg's uh, approaches to um, CGI are going to be for me, which is a shame because I think, you know, the BFG is part of every one of our generation's childhood, mm-hmm. and his obsession with Mark Rylance is promising to pay dividends, but part of what I love about Doll's books is the way that they balance these ingredients of the real world and fantasy and the sort of pastiche CGI world. I don't I mean it had this sort of physical effect on me, but also I just thought, oh, it sort of missed a basic premise of what I was excited about it having. Like, you know, by far my favourite moment in the Harry Potter films is when the the night bus squeezes along, you know, uh, I think it's Tower Bridge. I love that ma- meetup of location shooting with great effects. Mm-hmm. And this just, I don't know, it felt too airlessly fake right from the beginning in his like, merry ye oldy Englandy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But that's literally all I got. So, Lee, what was the rest of the film like? Well, it's it was kind of a lot like that. It was this weird. It took me a long time to figure out what what I what the film was doing. That was so strange, and it, I realized it's, it was more like a Robert Zemeckis film than a Spielberg film, and not just because of all the uncanny valley CGI, but. He deploys the CGI the way Zemeckis does with this sort of CGI camera work as a, as opposed to a real camera work incorporating CGI elements like with the Harry Potter thing. And I mean, Mark Rylance is, I, I think, the best thing about it. But this whole the script has this weird inertia to it, and I can't I can't quite figure out why that is because it does a lot of the things that maybe it's different in the book because in, in the book when they sit down and have tea for twenty minutes that's okay because you're reading a book. In the film, it just feels bizarre. Mm-hmm. But I will say about it, uh, Sophie, lately, you, I mean, you have been comparing a lot of modern cinema to US conservatism, and I'm not entirely on board with, with, with this theory, which makes it very weird for me, because I could not resist seeing this whole thing as an Iraq invasion par- parable. Um, Whoa! Yeah, it was, especially <laughs> towards the end, it might have been, I don't know if that happened after you left, but... Um, 
yeah, they get into some very weird areas. And then at the end, there's a moment with, with um, spoiler alert, they're dropping the giants into the sea. And it, it's like, you know, is this the Bin Laden burial? Is that is this what they're doing? Wow. And um, yeah, very, very, uh, very strange uh, way to go for both Spielberg and Melissa Matheson. Yeah, I mean, I, I was quite wary of the film even before I heard about that, because I just think there's been a sea change in our culture since the book was written and also when you manifest something visually it has a different impact when you read it in a book and the bfg has always hovered on the verge of being kind of an apologia for pedophilia it's like you know this man comes and he kidnaps a girl and tells her she can't tell anyone because they won't believe in him and he keeps her in his hidey hole and tells her that no he's really gentle and different from all the other mean giants who who like to eat humans um oh wow and that you know, that kind of freaks me out. Like the whole Mr. Snufflepagus thing. You yeah. Know. Um, it's so obvious you now. that you destroyed my childhood. Same. Yeah, but you know, it's, it's not our childhood anymore, at least in, yeah. the, in the UK. And I know this is happening in, in Australia as well. Like, we're looking at a lot of our institutions and being like, what the fuck? You know, thanks for Rolf Harris, by the way. Oh, guys. you're welcome. Please keep him. Um. <laughs> yeah, in, in on remand, I think, is where we're keeping him at the moment. But, that, I but, mean, I think we're in such an intense, like, political moment. It's really hard not to watch these films and be like, ah, of course it's challenging these huge, you know, crisis moments. Mm. On which note, Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, talk about 9-11 parallels, like, Mm. Yorktown getting attacked by someone who'd formerly been trained by Starfleet. You know, but I feel like Simon Pegg kind of knows that he's doing that. It felt quite, quite knowing Mm. um, and sort of quite liberal and and hand-wringy about it. And, you know, I actually, as someone who has, like, no like real investment in star trek mythology um i i quite i enjoyed this film you know cool yeah i I was i was really surprised that i quite enjoyed it as well like star trek plays no part in my kind of pop cultural consciousness it wasn't a part of my childhood um it wasn't something i ever felt an urge to chase up later on um and I really I have to preface that by saying um the previous installment I did actually see that Star Trek Into Darkness um and I'd forgotten the plot basically before the credits had even rolled Uh, but I did I did quite enjoy this one yeah I was surprised I uh, I actually have Star Trek listed on my birth certificate um is is how deeply ingrained uh that the franchise is to me so i'm quite invested and um i don't know i I, like i i I also loved the film i thought it was i i was i I enjoyed the fact that it was so you know after the film that's called into darkness this is big (laughs) and bright and filled with hope and fun and it's that sense of exploration and discovery and inclusion and spectacle that that just ah felt like the trek i grew up on i think it felt a little rushed at times like the script was a bit was a bit rushed, uh, which is, you know, I don't know if I would have thought that if I hadn't known about the development process, but, um, uh, <laughs> but because they were rushing to get to the 50th Louis anniversary. Nemesis. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Star Trek, <laughs> Star Trek Nemesis, also a terrible Star Trek film. Also. No, but, uh, but no, I, I look, I really, really enjoyed this film and it really felt like the, the closest we've come to Roddenberry's vision that we've had in years and years and years. And, 
And, and speaking about the, uh, the the 9-11 imagery, I was wondering where they were going to go with this, because watching the trailers for this film, it, it seemed like I was fascinated by the fact that the bad guy was pushing against colonialism. You know, that line, this is where the frontier yeah. pushes back. And, and you know, spoilers lying ahead. Um, they, they sort of flip that around and make it so that the bad guy is himself the original colonialist who is entrenched in the idea of the military and is pushing against the peacekeeping mission and it's the idea of brute brute strength versus reconciliation and and i think for me that was what felt most star trekky to me it was that it was yeah it was strength versus peace and uh, and so mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed it on that level as well mm-hmm. i still Even- had this like oh this sort of breath sucking in moment there needs to be a better word for that when uh, they were lining up the attack on the swarm ships and i was like no way no way no way are they going to use fight the power to take down a villain played by idris elba <laughs> like a bunch of white guys no so and they kind of you know again this is where you see peg you know he has his whatever he wrote his dissertation on this hat on and and they sort of again switch it around and they bring out the beastie boys and it's still a little bit uncomfortable but you know i'm not huge <laughs> on acts of cinematic destruction but i have to say that i loved the swarm ships i thought it was an amazing idea to have ships that worked like a bee swarm and then their idea for how to take them down and because they're not sentient you can just sort of watch that and appreciate sort of the visual of it i thought that was really um that was actually a really great use of cgi and it felt like as you said very true to the original star trek mission and um but with this like big screen aesthetic mm. um that was cool <laughs> yeah, and it just, I the, I just said blowing something up was cool. <laughs> just the way those um those kind of like very spectacular moments. Also, when that when the swarm attacks the ship, um closer to the beginning, um the payoff of those kind of visual moments was really incredible and really spectacular. Also, the kind of um the kind of world that had been built. Um, I'm blanking on the name of what was that called? Uh, the um, the, uh, Yorktown. 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 Yeah, like when the the kind of reveal of that when they when they talked it up so much was really um, spectacular. The thing that I was comparing it to was um, Midnight Special, and when there's that kind of reveal at the end of of the world above the world that's just so disappointing and such a letdown. Whereas, <laughs> um, yeah, when, when you're kind of introduced to Yorktown in those opening moments, um, I, I was surprised by how enamored I was by the spectacle Hmm. yeah yeah and I you know I think it's very savvy and very cute to make our point of identification with Yorktown Sulu's husband and kid like that's definitely something new from a blockbuster in a way while using you know those hopey changey humanistic elements of Star Trek but it did give it a a free zone of something new Mm. that you know, fits with the the way the Spock Uhura relationship is being handled, and you know, it's great to see a Star Trek where it's not about like Kirk getting off with the random, you know, non-human women that they find on a planet. You know, and it it plays with that. And I thought Jayla was amazing. She, you know, totally kicked ass, and she managed that deadpan humor, you know, she, yeah. re- really well. Um, but you did just have this like, oh god, you know, Kirk on the most bike it's going to happen and it didn't. And I, you know, I, I had a little in a, in, in internal whoop about that. 
Well, then, you know, the motorbike scene was great as well. Yeah, it was. It, <laughs> it was. was. So, uh, the, and now to the other big film of the month, uh, Ghostbusters. So we, we talked uh, we talked the other month about all the uh, the political stuff behind it and the furore about the you know, the film as it was in pre production. Now that the film is actually out, what what did we make of it? I don't I don't know I don't really know what to say. Like again, I'm I keep using the word surprise because I guess like these just aren't the kind of films that I'm um, you know gagging to see a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. But I was really surprised by the kind of elation that I felt just seeing four women on screen who weren't like necessarily discussing the fact that they were women, that they had jobs and they were, that they were doing, they were busting ghosts, you know, whatever. But um, the fact that even though there were those kind of um, meta theatrical moments where they were, were referring to the kind of external, um, you know, furor around, um, around this kind of remake and recasting, um, it just actually was a really nice experience to see that kind of film and, and to see four women in the lead. Mm. Yeah, I, I aesthetically it felt it felt new. Like, I mean, we've been talking about it so much that you know, you it's kind of consciously you're aware of it being a political act. And then actually watching the film, I found it really refreshing on a on a you know, I guess subconscious level where it actually did feel like I was seeing something new to the to the same old you know cast that we normally normally see. And I was actually surprised at how like the other level that that all, all worked on um that i found i don't know the film has such a weird energy to it and it's the energy you get from that judd apatow generation of improvising where the script feels loose enough that the scenes feel sequential rather than naturally flowing and the dialogue has that as well and it, and it was really i don't know it was it was disjointed for a lot of it but i think he does mm. pull it pull it together and I don't know, for, for me, the, the jokes had this inverse bell curve where some of them were so bad that I can't believe it, that they made it to the assembly edit, let alone the final product. <laughs> like, there's one rock star cameo in particular that should not have come anywhere near the film. And then, and then the other half of the of the jokes uh, are so good, I, I could barely breathe from laughing. So it was this weird mix of terrible jokes and absolute genius jokes. Um but the the most impressive thing and the most surprising thing for me is that Fag managed to create truly iconic imagery because you know th- th- there are a lot of callbacks to the original film which is natural but he's going to be he's he's fighting against some all-time iconic imagery and there are moments in this film that I think will be remembered on their own merits like in particular the the sequence with Kate McKinnon um and I just thought, don't cut away from this. Just commit to this. You started, and there was this energy building. And he does. He absolutely. He stays on her. And I think it's it's probably the best scene in the film. The the dance scene or the weapon scene? Uh, it's the it's <laughs> oh uh, the the fight scene where she's pulling out all the weapons and like she just gets oh, fed yeah. up and takes them all out. And I thought, yeah, I just thought that was masterfully filmed. I just kind of have an edit of the film in my head where it's just the Kate McKinnon fan edit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I would like to I, see I was that. Like, which, which, which Kate McKinnon scene? Because surely the whole film is just staying on. Yeah, uh, that, um, would, that edit would definitely be relevant to my interests. Um. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I feel like I've been a terrible party pooper about 
about Ghostbusters and I've had a number of conversations with people where I've watched their faces for like I've just you know kicked their glass ceiling shattering puppy mm. I yeah I'm I didn't laugh much I love Katie Dippold as a screenwriter I you know Parks and Recreation will make me weep with laughter and tears simultaneously mm. and there was I'm sort of excited for Ghostbusters 3.2 or whatever we're going to call it where the ensemble has gelled more because I think her writing is really for actors who know each other and have worked a long time with each other and this kind of had Parks and Recreation season one all over it where it's like the timing was always a little bit off and that's kind of a Paul Fagg thing as well he doesn't know how to direct or edit dialogue mm. he'll always let a line or a scene run on a little bit long and it was like just towards the end I was like okay in the action sequences like particularly the big one building up to the you know closing the void I can really feel the crackle of the energy here I thought the writing for Chris Hemsworth not as Kevin but when he was possessed by Rowan Mm. was hilarious and the best bit of the film and it was really smart and really contained because it knew it had to make it to the climax it couldn't just sort of pootle along yeah so yeah i've sort of gone back and forth on on this and i feel like you know when i was 14 i would have been so excited to see this film and i would have absolutely loved it and now i'm like really curmudgeonly and old and i spend a lot (laughs) of time watching films that have like four female protagonists and uh they get to do cool stuff so maybe you know it wasn't for me i wasn't the most important person seeing it and i think really telling about that was my favorite 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 moment in the film is sigourney weaver's cameo oh yeah like (laughs) You know, that I was like, I want to see that film. Like, the whole prequel with the really sexy older professor, and yeah. But, you know, I, I stayed through all the post cred stuff, and I will be buying the Chris Hemsworth aerobics video. And, um, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm excited for the second film, having sort of felt that the first one stuttered. So, mm. I. I don't know what that makes me. I do, following my political analogies, think that it was the Hillary Clinton of this summer's blockbusters. You know, <laughs> you may not be like a thousand percent behind her, but undeniably it breaks the glass ceiling and you have a tear in your eye about that, for sure. All right, Beck, please tell us, whom have you picked for your Hell is for Hyphenates filmmaker of the month? Uh, I've picked the German director Rainer Werner Fassbinder. Excellent, excellent. The epic, the uh, the prolific Fassbinder. How many? Is it forty films that he uh, made? Yeah, it depends how you're kind of classifying them. I think it's thirty six features, but then um, there's TV films and. Docos, um, extended TV series, Berlin Alexanderplatz goes for 15 hours, um, and that's not counting the, like, incredible number of, of plays and radio plays and also his work as an actor. Mm. And he did this in 20 years. Yeah, in in something like 17 years. Um, the yeah. kind of, yeah, output is ridiculous. I can't think of anyone else who rivals him. In that how did he do it how how did he how did he manage that uh, a lot of cocaine <laughs> from what i can gather <laughs> um 
he also uh, was was largely self-taught. So he'd been to drama school, um, but he made he made eleven films, I think, in three years from nineteen sixty nine to nineteen seventy one, and really a lot of it is him kind of working out how to make a film during that period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, he also worked as part of a collective, so uh, they'd originally begun as a theatre company um, that already existed that that he actually um, entered at some stage, but they were working together as a troupe. So, you know, he's very much a kind of uh, post-68 filmmaker and especially in the early films, the kind of debt to Godard is huge. But um, that kind of spirit of of collectivity um, was, you know, well, at least in theory, the way the early films were being made. Um, in practice, uh, Fassbinder was a bit more of a tyrant um, and definitely at the helm of them. Um, but I think that's that's how they sustained um, that incredible energy at the start to some extent. Wow. He's sort of the figure of the German New Wave, isn't he? And I, I say that as someone who hasn't heard of any other figures from the German New Wave. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, he's he's really interesting in that, you know, on the one hand now, yeah, he's that filmmaker that he's the only figure of the German New Wave that we can name and has, like, very much been embraced by um, by the kind of academy and, and by, you know, whatever processes of canon making. Um, but at the time, so much of that, um, that reputation, at least in the early days, was built as on him being, um, to some extent, an outsider from mm-hmm. um, from that kind of group as well. Mm. It's yeah. it's interesting to see uh, he, who influenced him and who he then influenced. And this is just going mm. from, from what I was watching. You can see a lot of uh, Douglas Sirk in certain films. And I detect a lot of sure. French New Wave, particularly in the beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then looking at the filmmakers who have come after, I am convinced that Lars von Trier must have seen Women in New York before he made Dogville, and Quentin Tarantino must have seen Whitey before he made Django Unchained. Um, yeah, sure. So, yeah, it's, he occupies a very strange sort of bridge between uh, very, very disparate <laughs> filmmakers. Yeah, and even um, Todd Haynes' Douglas Sirk homage is, once you've seen Fassbinder, is very much Sirk through the kind of lens of Fassbinder as well. Yeah. Yeah, right. Sure, yeah. and Fra- Francois Ozon actually made a unfilmed um, Fassbinder script called Water Drops on Burning Rocks, which is one of the weirdest films in Ozon's filmography this sort of strange menage a trois that never leaves the apartment where the story is being told so i think he he is kind of a filmmaker's filmmaker and also a filmmaker who's really beloved of of writers like there's an amazing story by torvi jansen who you know wrote the moomins so Mm -hmm. you know the moomins really charming little finnish creatures and it's sort of a semi-autobiographical story about her and, and her girlfriend. And they had flats near each other in the same building. And it's about an argument between these two women. And then the way they settle it is one of them says, well, do you want to come over to my fat? There's a Fassbinder film uh, on TV and we could watch it together. So mm-hmm. his importance for like particularly queer writers in the 60s 70s 80s and queer filmmakers like Haynes and Ozon and Derek Jarman who was a huge Fassbinder fan I think he was just 
he was almost sort of a secular saint and a kind of a code. You know, he was very popular as an auteur at film festivals, but at the same time, everyone knew that it was coming from this this underworld that gave you an opportunity to talk about things. Um, and then with Theory It's the Soul, he became a, an amazingly important filmmaker, I think, for black filmmakers and um, immigrant filmmakers in Europe as well. Like, that, he was the first person to really show an interracial relationship and mm. and um, tell the truth about it. And that's you know i think that film probably is the one that still really resonates with people now i don't know beck do you think that's unfairly dismissing the other yeah <laughs> <laughs> um that was the film that i saw first i think um like i got fast bender at, at just the right age i was in my early 20s and i think yeah i'd come to him through studying douglas sirk and it was a film that really drew me in and it's quite i think it's quite moving in a way that some of the other ones that are a bit more maybe cynical or a little bit more knowing aren't for some people but also in those kind of you know really it's a film about loneliness as well um it's a film about kind of two different kinds of of outsiders um and it's a film about kind of impossible love and especially those kind of um during that period it was when he really I think came into his own as a filmmaker and and was making like ostensibly melodramas but um a million different permutations of melodramas but yeah I think it it really encapsulates a lot of things about his kind of broader cinema for a lot of people yeah but I mean what would be your favorite now or your favorite period of his films is there a sort of great run yeah sure um yeah, so like I said, the early 20s thing was kind of like I was attracted to him because they were so like so incredibly cynical and so, you know, like <laughs> the majority of them are really sticking it to middle class values and they're these kind of like doom love stories where someone's always going to sell you out and I was kind of like right on. Um, <laughs> and it was really, it was really um those kind of really the iconic queer films where um that's that's maybe the most patent so films like fox and his friends uh the bitter tears of petra von kant um and then in a year of 13 moons um those three are, are probably my favorite but um in a year of 13 moons for similar reasons to ali in that it's just such a it's probably the bleakest of his films mm. um mm-hmm. but it's so um so devastating um and so moving and and also that's the other thing as i've as i've gotten older um there's different things that I'm attracted to in his filmmaking and, and his relentless exploration of what kind of contemporary German identity is throughout his filmmaking. And, and that's um, a film where it happens kind of through the lens of sexuality and, and this kind of um, split figure. But, yeah, through, throughout his filmmaking, um, he's done that in this incredible, incredibly imaginative and incredibly relentless and sometimes quite uncomfortable way as well he's not always on the uh the most politically correct side of the argument but the way that he's done that throughout his his body of work is quite remarkable Mm. he's got this uh enfant terrible reputation and it's it's earned and you can feel that you know Mm. visceral non-conformity in his work but he also has a very gentle touch like he's like He's like the bad boy you fall in love with and nobody understands you. And you're like, he's got a really soft centre <laughs> and, and no one believes you, but you can see it. And and he does have it because, you know, he, he handles his characters so sensitively. Like, 
from you know fear eats the soul to mother custard goes to heaven and and as you say the central character in year with 13 moons he's got so much sympathy for people who get trodden on by life and it's very i, I found it sort of endearingly gentle the way he he introduces us to these people Sure. Yeah, he's kind of, um, like, in terms of auteur theory, he's like the ultimate auteur in terms of um, kind of personal filmmaking and especially um, in early assessments of his work, um, people are really psychoanalytic often because because he was as well. And, you know, he he says that films were basically kind of a form of psychotherapy and, and all his experiences he was um, he was filtering through his filmmaking, but yeah, by all accounts, he was a he was a total art monster and quite a sadist to the people that he loved, and that kind of relentless energy that uh, that you know drove him to make that many films in that short period of time um, also was you know completely destructive and just obliterated so many of his kind of personal relationships. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting then that when he. He, I mean, he often took roles in his own films as part of that ensemble um, sort of process. But the one time he plays a main role in in Fox and His Friends, he's sort of the ultimate innocent victim figure. That he's not, he doesn't at all cast himself as a kind of cruel, domineering figure. He plays the opposite of that, and he's, mm. as you said, completely fascinated with that figure of the of the victim and the way that people are exploited and in yes. some ways like in, in Quirrell which is his last film come to love their exploitation and love their exploiters which is you know I, I think is you know a really psychoanalytic twist and and we could unpack it with lots of big terms for, for hours <laughs> in, in Fox and his friends it's like it's such a direct statement I don't know if any you know filmmaker maybe up until someone like Jonathan Cowett has really put themselves on screen in that totally vulnerable way. Yeah, it's really interesting though. Like it's it's hard not to view the films through through the lens of the personal. But he he um, dedicates the film at the start for Armin and all the others, which is mm-hmm. such a, like a passive aggressive gesture that you know you're just you're just kind of one of many um and that very vulnerable character was um was based on Armin Meyer who was his partner at the time who when he'd met him uh worked in a butcher shop worked nights in a bar and lived uh lived above it and Fox is this yeah this very vulnerable kind of kind-hearted working class figure um that was that was in a lot of ways drawn from from Armin's life, but then also Fassbinder's as well. And the, and the way those kind of um, gestures of tenderness are always quite um, brutal and almost sadistic at the same time played into a lot of the ways that he brought other people's lives into the films as well. And in this kind of impossibility of separating art and life, you know, there's scenes where people talk about the fact that, you know, every line of dialogue had probably been spoken at some time by different people in the collective and then he's combined them in these speeches that he's forcing them to act out and it's kind of this supreme way of controlling people that he's able to to make these kind of statements on their on their life within the art that they're all producing together. Wow. <laughs> I mean it's so it's so raw and it's like such a almost like pure form of artistry to say everything around me can be made into art but I'm going to make it 
in collaboration with these people but at the same time it does play into that autocratic autorial stereotype and it's really hard not to put that you know to move away from the personal reading and to say well this is also he's he's making films in west germany starting in the 60s but so many of his films and tv work are shaped by world war ii and the legacy of you know germans coming to terms with the second world war so probably you know the trilogy of the marriage of of maria brown lola Mm. and veronica voss Mm. all of which focus on these women who are navigating their ways through that sort of dangerous moment of of the war and and the aftermath of the war when people are sort of reinventing themselves but also totally traumatized like that seems to me to have a, a huge impact on his work like trying to understand how did we as a nation as a people do this so on the one hand he populates his work with with outsiders with queer people trans people Jews and then on the other hand he's exploring like these notions of domination and dictatorship and and sadism and sort of bringing them together in this this way that really confronts people Mm. yeah definitely and those things you talked about before about the fact that in in this kind of idea of victimhood that he keeps going back to there's always some sense that the victims kind of like it that there's some kind of um masochistic element to that relationship you know most patently in um the bitter tears of petra von kant um there's a character called marlene who's this uh fashion designer's assistant who she treats like a servant um but at the end of the film where she kind of offers her um this moment of kindness and and kind of retracts some of the brutality she's shown in the past Marlene packs up her bags and and walks out of the room and there's always this kind of pact between um victims and their tormentors that there's some kind of nobility in in their sacrifice but also yeah when you when you start talking about it in terms of German identity which it's completely inseparable from um yeah sometimes the politics get very very murky it's I I thought this was a, a masterful film and I'm so irritated because he wrote it in a 12-hour plane trip, apparently. Um, <laughs> Remember the cocaine. Remember the cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> Are you allowed on planes? Him, it was only like a one-and-a-half-hour plane trip. <laughs> <laughs> it, remind, it reminds me a lot as, of what, as well uh, in The Clouds of Sils Maria, the last Olivia Assayas film, mm. um, the play that uh, Kristen Stewart and Juliet. uh, Juliet Binoche are rehearsing is yeah is so much the kind of power dynamics of it uh, feel really drawn from from something like Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant which of course as well um came from a play and I think you can see that so much in the kind of contained claustrophobic environment of this incredible baroque uh, apartment that that Petra and her live-in lover Karen inhabit and I think also one of his major literary influences is on show in in Petra von Kahn and you know will be the the subject of an adaptation for his final film which is Jean Genet mm. um and Genet's play The Maids is definitely in there in the the DNA of Petra von Kahn and Genet's outsider status his writing about class in the 70s his sort of his interest in the the PLO and what it means to be a freedom fighter which is something that Fassbinder picks up when he looks at you know the Bader Meinhof the politics of Bader Meinhof mm. but you can you can almost see his oeuvre as like this long love letter to 
Genet, who is the, you know, the supreme artist of the the outsider victim who loves his sadistic master and the, the that bad boy with the soft center who's brilliantly literary, untaught, writes so much so fast. You know, there's like this really intense love affair going as almost as if they're exchanging texts with each other, like as secret love notes, which is, you know, is kind of it's kind of incredible. Mm. What do you make of Corel then? I, 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 what do you make of? <laughs> <laughs> I, it's a, it's this sort of incredible Pierre Gilles, like hyper camp neon lit. You know, it's like so different. It's like some sort of escape from him. This fantasy escape into this sort of weird European North African studio set. It just looks like nothing else in his in his oeuvre. Um, and it has so many of the themes and so many of the ensemble cast pop up. But it's so despairing. Like mm. ultimately, you know, it's for me. Like it is one of my favorites. Like one of the masterpieces. But. I, it did kind of break him. Mm. Mm. I mean, that, yeah, he didn't mm. even live to see its premiere. But yeah. I mean, I, I had to really resist the temptation to find deeper meanings in posthumous works that we wouldn't otherwise find. And I had to really resist looking at it like an epitaph because it, you know, it feels like that. But again, um, I, I might just be putting that into it because he was 37 years old when he made it. And, you know, he, I can't imagine he wouldn't have thought he didn't have 30 or 40 years left of, of filmmaking. Um, but there is something, yeah, very, very bleak about it. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting because, yeah, he's held up for good reason as this kind of iconic queer filmmaker, but considering the breadth of that body of work, so often that kind of queer gaze is limited to subtext. There's only a number of films you could count on one hand that actually have um, characters who are acknowledged to be queer in them. But then when, when he finally, you know, faces off with Janae in that final film it's just dripping with it's just clock city yeah (laughs) because that's the other thing like part of that attraction early on is just like the films are like incredibly cool and the outfits and um and the kind of costuming and often the the really baroque settings but yeah it all kind of becomes this sort of clusterfuck in Corel where it's all there's just so many signs kind of fighting off against each other. I don't know. Mm, yeah, it's it's and it's also got this weird anachronistic narration that sounds more at home in the Royal Tenenbaums than in Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the Royal Tenenbaums might have borrowed it from Corral. I'm gonna have to check you know, the dates. Time can go backwards as well. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even talked about like his clear love hate relationship with American cinema and his sort of parodying and pastiching not not just of of Cirque who he clearly loves but of American genre cinema and B-movies his sort of obsession with uh, 1930s and 1940s uh, noir and sort of re-Europeanising that and then also you know with some of the seamier side of of Hollywood cinema. Yeah Veronica Voss had a a real sort of Sunset Boulevard thing going on. Yeah Mm. totally Mm. yeah and uh, it's hard to tell with those kind of um, early cycle of gangster films. Like they're very much Hollywood gangster films by way of um, of French New Wave, and it's hard to tell uh, where exactly the source of them's coming coming from, I guess. But then films like Whitey, which is just this totally bizarre, mm. stagey racial western that takes place in Germany. Yeah, the, those kind of 
Hollywood illusions are, are littered throughout. Yeah, Whitey is something else. I've been trying to trying to talk all my Tarantino obsessed friends into tracking that one down because. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, World on a Wire is his only science fiction film. It's sort of a made-for-TV movie, mm. but I think it played at some film festivals, and it's, it's you know, very mm. Matrix-y, very Inception-y, and, and it's seven, 1973, and it feels perfectly in line with Westworld, which came out the same year in Planet of the Apes um, yeah. a few years earlier. Uh, this high-concept science fiction, I, the, the technical proficiency was amazing for someone who is such a, a raw filmmaker to do something that controlled and that uh, immersive was was very mm-hmm. impressive. Was it a commission for TV, World on a Wire? Did someone sort of approach him to make it or did he just, you know, sail forth with it? Because it does, as you're saying, like it stands out generically, it stands out in the terms of, of the way it was made and the way it looks. And I'm just wondering whether that was something, you know, mm. German TV came to him and said, we'll give you a budget and some SFX people. And... I'm not sure. I'd never actually considered the idea that someone would ask him to do something rather. He would force everyone <laughs> else to, <laughs> this is what I feel like doing now, out of my way. I mean, obviously he did manage to persuade German TV, like, I'm going to make this like multi-port adaptation of Berlin Alexanderplatz. It's, mm. what, it's like 900 minutes long and uh, you're, you're going to screen it. So he was obviously really good at persuading people. Some of those films, yeah, that were made as TV films, things like Martha, that's this kind of um, melodrama about this awful sadistic middle-class marriage that includes a scene with a a sunburnt sex scene that I will never ever erase from my memory (laughs) awful but that was a that was a tv film um also Mm. something like I think fear of fear is that what it's called fear of fear yeah Yeah. that was a tv film as well which is this kind of Again, an, another melodrama about this woman, this mother kind of unraveling who is so scared that she's going mad that she's kind of becoming mad in the process. But it's it's just incomprehensible that these kind of films um, would be made for, for TV in any other period. Yeah, it's, it, it's fascinating to look at, at all those films he, he made, how he jumps around in styles. He seems like someone who is so focused on a very specific type of cinema but when you watch all of his films you know he did um uh what was that that amazing period piece he did um Effie Breast yes yes he made that I love Effie Breast Mm, beautiful film again it's a complete outlier but it feels like you could just go through Fassbinder's career because he made so many films going outlier 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 (laughs) yeah yeah. Even though he's a, such a personal filmmaker, it's re- you can't really say he ever repeated himself. But Effie Breast is this is a black and white, um, you know, adaptation of a classic. It's his only pre twentieth century historical drama, and it you know absolutely fits in. It's like you know, it's like he just mainlined some Renoir films for a couple of days, and then he went great. Mm. I know kung fu. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> makes this incredibly tender, well-mannered. I mean, there's still very, you know, Fassbender-type issues to do with submitting yourself and suffering and desire, you know, illicit desires. But I think if you showed that to someone who just had seen Carell and Fox and their friends, they would struggle to identify it as a a Fassbender film. And yeah, Mm. it is through and through. Mm. Mm. And it, it's totally fascinating going through those uh, those early 
whatever it was, 11 films, and seeing him almost try on different styles as a way of um, of teaching himself. And again, that kind of inheritance of the theatre along with the kind of Hollywood genre cinema is so patent in films like um, Cuts or Matcha mm. and, and The Coffee House, which is essentially just kind of a sort of Brechtian performance that's, I think that was another one that was recorded for TV and it really just feels like theatre on film. But yeah, as he, as he runs through these different ideas and these different kind of modes, it almost is like like a way of working out what he'll become. But then, you know, as he goes on as a, as a filmmaker, that relentless experimentation continues. Yeah, I kind of felt like I was watching uh, The Birth of Mumblecore in Katzelmatcher, and, uh, or however you pronounce it. Uh, yeah, he's, he's, <laughs> his second film, which, which, which makes me love him and, and hate him in equal measure for inventing Mumblecore. <laughs> but yeah, those, those, those early films, uh, The American Soldier, that, that you know, the neo-noir about the, the US soldier. He loves having US soldiers in his film, and it's interesting. You were talking um, before about the uh, the trilogy he made of Marriage of Maria Braun and Lola and Veronica Voss, which is the BRD trilogy about uh, Bundesrepublik Deutschland, which was West Germany's official name. And I noticed that Gunter Kaufmann plays an American GI in all three, and I was wondering if he's playing the same character, and uh, and this is the closest we'll get to a Fassbinder cinematic universe. <laughs> and I think you know the American GI was such a, a subject of such you know sexual fascination for all Europeans in the in the forties. Like this figure of plenty. If you've seen Hedwig and Angry Inch, you'll know that John Cameron Mitchell, also a Fassbinder fan, who has the American GI as the sugar daddy. Fassbinder's work is so I think in enriched by his experience of doing Brechtian theatre, that that idea of the archetype, you know, maybe that's one of the reasons he could he could write so much, write so clearly and work so fast, as he's really committed to those kind of theatrical archetypes mm. of the con artist, the soldier, the highly strung woman, the mother in despair. You know, they turn up over and over again, and they almost are like these kind of, you know, social figures in a morality play, um, even though he puts them in these wild, lurid situations. Like he's just like great we have our set of characters go and the gi is definitely one of those and i guess you just you find that actor who looks like they're the most plausible american gi and and cast them repeatedly Mm. yeah and and there's always that kind of weird tension between the fact that yeah they, they are these kind of social melodramas and they're so rooted in contemporary German experiences and and trying to explore that idea of contemporary German identity um but at the same time he never lets you forget that you're watching a film and and there's so many anti-realist interjections that just totally yeah totally disrupt that any any naturalism of that sort of social uh situation that he set up Mm. I think that's one of the reasons I love I love Corral is because that is the highest pitch of that it's so stagey you know yeah. it's almost uh like the beginning of uh Offal's La Ronde where you're shown the set that it's going to be filmed on and there is definitely I think some some Offal's in uh in Fassbinder that love of high theatricality in camp um that is trying to find the cinematic equivalent for what theatre had been you know achieving for a thousand years that all gets pressed into this very dense rich 
uh, social world. It's extraordinary that for, you know, for the number of films he made, that his minor works are so notable, you know, that a film like The Station Master's Wife in 77 could kind of fall through the cracks a little bit, which I, I just found it to be, you know, a stunning, stunning film, but he's made so many notable films that it, it sort of falls out of the conversation a little bit. Same with Despair in 78. It, mm-hmm. it, it's the biggest budget he'd had uh, up until that point, uh, apparently bigger than all of his previous films put together. English language uh, stars Dirk Bogard, and it's Tom Stoppard. It's by Tom Stoppard. Yeah, adapting Nabokov. So it's it's got a hell of a pedigree. <laughs> and, then, and then this amazing stuff about the character sort of being outside of himself watching himself and and the delusion about how he sees himself and how he believes others see him there's it's it's such an amazing work yeah totally and it's that kind of um that kind of doubleness that is playing across his cinema so much like i talked before about that figure in fox and his friends that's kind of fassbinder and and kind of arm and meyer and, and that kind of um splitting and and doubling happens yeah in so many of the films in mm. in petra von khan as well and uh yeah you can see it in in so many mm. do we th- how, how funny do we find him there's there's sort of a wry a, a wry sense of humor that runs through his his films but you get to something like satan's brew in 76 which is very slapsticky, very broad. A, a a character who is obsessed with collecting dead flies and then um, tries to have sex with them. It's it, he's got when he actually tries to be funny, tries to make a funny film. It, it's it's very strange, but I did laugh a lot at this one. <laughs> <laughs> Despairing laughter, isn't there? There's the sort of the world is fucked, so let's all throw our heads back and laugh and that that seems to be a very fassbinder moment like everyone will be in a bar and everything will be terrible and they'll all throw their heads back and have these amazing sexual despairing laughs Mm. (laughs) yeah or something like um why does her uh run amok where Mm. you know it's in some ways quite naturalistic this kind of put upon man who is trapped in these you know various bourgeois institutions and at the end of the film he just picks up a lampshade and and bludgeons everyone in his house to death and it's this awful (laughs) despairing moment but it's kind of funny as well like that's the most levity you can hope for in a (laughs) (laughs) yeah very true. So what would you, if you have to recommend a Fassbender film to somebody who is daunted by the, the 40 film filmography, the, the, the 27 hours of Berlin Alexander Platt, someone who looks at all that and says, where, where do I begin? <laughs> <laughs> if you had to recommend one film, what would it be? Uh, I would say The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kahn. Mm. Uh, I think it's a good kind of introduction, but it's just quite spectacular. It's so lavish and so Baroque and so melodramatic, but so many of those kind of um, recurrent ideas are there, and I think it's a really good one to start with. It's sort of the first film where he really finds his own style as well. It's the one that comes at the end of that improvisational cycle, and it's the first one where you go, right, this is a Fassbinder film. Totally. Um, yeah. I always expect the Bitter Tears of Petra von Kahn to be an opera. There is a there was an opera made of it and when I rewatched it this time I was like really surprised there wasn't any singing because it seems so operatic to me. Oh. Um for me like the high point is that trilogy of Fear Eats the Soul, Effie Breast and Fox and His Friends, which are mm-hmm. so different from each other. 
so recognizably Fassbinder, so working through this profound idea of that you can be in an intimate relationship and it can be the loneliest place to be. Just the range of those films when he's working at the height of his style, I would say if you want to get the full range, you can just yeah. take those three, made one after the other, and be blown away by it. Yeah. What I, about you? I, I think... If I, well, if I had to say there's one, the, the thing that's most impressive about him that I would recommend is the first 20 minutes of 1979's The Third Generation. That's some of the best shooting and editing I think I've ever seen. Either the first 20 minutes of that, I mean, keep watching, obviously, but that opening <laughs> in particular. Um, but I don't know, I think, um, I think my favourite of his films, and possibly the most accessible, is 1976's Chinese Roulette. Very much in the vein of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or, or God of Carnage. Uh, this very intense thriller-cum-drama that follows like a married couple that discover simultaneously that they're having an affair, that the other is having an affair, and they decide to be really civil about it, and the four of them try to spend a weekend together. And it's such a glorious setup, and the complications that ensue from all of the the amazing array of supporting characters, and it's so sort of... I don't know, funny and tense and interesting. Like, you're desperate to find out what will happen next in any given scene. That's the one that I would I would shove in front of people's faces, I think. Yeah, and that one's also quite funny as well. Like, in some ways, it's a it's a social satire that you you have this kind of like ultimate bourgeois marriage where um, they're both fine with these affairs that they're having and then and then their monstrous daughter who's a cripple with this incredible doll collection and, and wants to take them both down is kind of the the necessary offspring of that relationship mm. yeah. yeah quite a lot of people have speculated about what would have happened had he not died at 37 um you know he was moving into international co-productions would he have found hollywood or you know in the late 70s american indie coming calling um to bring him over to make films in america and you can imagine sort of the meeting of minds between fassbinder and scorsese mm. or you know would he have carried on and moved into sort of euro puddings in the way that margaret von trotter sort of sadly found herself in in the 80s and 90s sort of squandering her her political acumen and, and filmmaking although i think you know she's she's come back around do, do, you, do you guys ever think about that or do you just like that's the career that's what happened or are you interested in those Oh, I'm, I'm, I would love to know what he would have done. Um, you know, if we can take a peek into that parallel universe and see what his career looked like, especially once the war comes down, I want to see what Fassbinder in sort of you know a post-Berlin Wall world looks like. Right, not like Goodbye Lenin. Uh, well, <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> Um, I don't know, for me it's kind of hard because so much about Fassbinder kind of gets obscured by the mythology, right? And, you know, Fassbinder is this kind of like supernova. It's hard to imagine anything that comes after that. But just also the fact that um, like a, a lot of what I love about Fassbinder is Fassbinder's women, like Hannah uh, Shagula, I'm sure I'm pronouncing her name wrong, is just, such a phenomenal figure, um, and Ingrid Carvin and Margaret Carstensen. But the, a lot of those relationships were disintegrating at that point, and, and it's really difficult to imagine his cinema um, without without those women and without some of those regular players. Mm. Yeah, I guess I sort of think about what would have happened if you'd gone to the US and worked with someone like Gina Rowlands. Mm. Um, yeah. 
well that's the young is about pair or something in the way that michael hanneke did yeah and there's so many parallels um with him and cassavetes and um and the way those women inhabit those kind of um tragic destructive figures that um that gina rollins did so perfectly yeah I could see him falling in with the uh, uh, Jim Jarmusch's 80s crowd, that uh, the, the, that New York collective. Um, I'm sure they would have uh, taken him on as a patron saint. Mm. Yeah, and you can almost feel that Jarmusch and then um, Van Sant are picking up where Fassbinder leaves off. Mm. I'm Mala Noche, Van Sant's first feature is absolutely an homage. You know, it's shot in black and white. It has that kind of slightly sketchy melodramatic plotting and underworld setting and so maybe maybe he diffused spiritually and really is at the heart of certainly of new queer cinema like you can't imagine new could uh, you know tom kaylin or, or um todd haynes um or van sant without fassbinder mm. um and and maybe that is what happened that part of because of the legend and the impact of the work, also because there was such a huge body of work to, to watch. You know, usually when people die at 37, there's like a couple of films and you do have to speculate about what you what they would have done. But with Fassbinder, you sort of, you can read it and project it and, and take it on. Um, and he made that space for those, those filmmakers to make the first, you know, really openly queer cinema in, a, in Anglophone culture. Mm. Totally. And just kind of as a model of, um, as an independent filmmaker as well, like I think it was a particular um, time in German film funding where where that kind of emphasis on um, on recreating the German identity or whatever was quite fruitful for those those filmmakers that were part of that new German cinema. But the way he's kind of able to navigate working within that system and also working outside of it as well is is pretty remarkable as a model for filmmakers to come. Like something like the third generation apparently went. And, you know, he was at a point in his career where where people were sort of throwing money at him. That was something that he funded himself because it was a project whose um, whose politics were were going to be quite controversial, and he knew that it wasn't something that he was going to be able to get funded by the state. Mm. Yeah, I'm just still daunted by the energy of it. Mm. You know, the energy of his project and and its completeness. Like you, the Fassbinder cinematic universe, it, I think, does exist. <laughs> but it's not necessarily <laughs> continuous. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, if, if anyone has a spare, hang on, let me do a quick mental calculation. Too many series, <laughs> 40, 80, 80, 130 <laughs> hours. A yeah. <laughs> yeah, a year. Yeah, just binge them all. Just, you know, I, I, I did them all in a month, including, you know, including uh, Alexander Platz and uh, wow, I, I barely nice. went insane at all. So, um... <laughs> and it, you know, his films do reflect the experience of watching them, which is you are inside a room doing the sex, death, despair laugh for like <laughs> the 30 hours. <laughs> That's, and what a note to go only, out. <laughs> the only sunny month that we've had in Britain for several years. Mm. Well, it's been an extraordinary uh, road, but we finally got here. Beck, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been brilliant. Thank you for surviving. Yes, (laughs) definitely. And uh, we will see the rest of you next month.
control myself. 